With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of the Royal Blue Podcast in association with Sport Payset. There's no football this week, but still a lot of Everton news and views to discuss. I'm joined today by Chris Beasley. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Sam. Getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Afternoon, yeah. <laughs> uh, Adam, good morning. Hello. And Dave? It's Friday. He's actually wishing the day away, looking for that Friday tea time. Shandy. <laughs> well, we'll get straight into things. Adam, you had a pretty interesting uh, visit yesterday. Tell us a little bit more about the circumstances you met Phil Jagielka and Leighton Bainton. Yeah, I went down to the uh, to the Blue Base yesterday where uh, the People's Project was starting its formal consultation process for uh, the new stadium and for the uh, Goodison redevelopment. And it was all really good. Like uh, I went inside the little pod that they've got you know like that big the big truck that's going to be traveling around liverpool for the next <laughs> like three weeks coca-cola truck. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it's a bit less lights on the side of it but yeah that's what it, it what it felt like and there was loads of ipads on show you know so much information on display and as i say it's it's well worth every, everyone going down and uh taking a look at and jaggy elker and baines were there uh, john joe kenny was there and they were all just really really impressed by what, what was on display and they all seem really excited about what's going to happen in the future. Like I asked them as well, is it something that the squad are quite in tune with? And both Jaggy Elker and Baines told me that, yeah, like th- this is something that, you know, this, the squad I've had discussions with, especially them being uh, with Everton for so long, they, you know, it's it's something that they, they're really invested in. And both of them have said, he, like, even despite the fact that they're not going to be playing for Everton by the time the Bramley Moor comes around, like, Phil Jagielka said, you won't be able to keep me out of that stadium. <laughs> he'll, he'll be there with the rest of us. So, yeah, it's all it's all really exciting. Will you be getting yourself down to the Blue Base, Dave? Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I don't know quite what to expect. Um, it, it does seem a bit of a strange concept, you know, basing it all in the back of a, a juggernaut. <laughs> uh, but, you know, clearly that's, you know, for its mobility, you know, value, they're going to be taking it, you know, around the, the city and, areas of the other region, you know, to allow fans and not just fans, but, you know, the general public everywhere to see what it's all about. Uh, but it, it's a message that's very, very important. Um, clearly, you know, so every single Everton fan, you know, well, 99.9% of every single Everton fan is desperate for this to succeed. And, uh, you know, so what wants it to happen as quickly as possible. Uh, but, you know, the general public at large are the people that Everton are keen to get on side because there are, some opponents, I mean, um, you know, the heritage status of uh, the Bramley Moor dock area is something that's concerning some people. Bit of a strange one for me, that, because no one can actually enjoy that heritage status because, yeah. you know, it, it's a sealed, you know, location anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, can't ever- fly your kite on it. Well, exactly. Ever since <laughs> <laughs> actually opening up that area, and they will be sympathetic and sensitive to the changes. You know, the, the dock walls, that, that wonderfully iconic clock that's on the riverfront will all remain. Uh, but, you know, these people have got to be reassured that, you know, so Everton are going to improve the area, you know, so rather than, you know, ransack a, a heritage site. So it's just a, a, a case of getting everybody on side so that, you know, eventually when planning permission is uh, is put forward, 
you know, fingers crossed everything will go smoothly. I think for me, it's really interesting that it's it's not even just the new stadium, obviously, that we're talking about. So I think they've started at the Blue Base, which is so close to Goodison Park, because yeah. they want to remind everyone that this is two areas of the city that they really want to regenerate. And just because Everton are going to be moving to a new stadium on the dock, it doesn't mean that they're going to forget where where they've come from, where they were built up as a club. And, mm. you know, they, they are going to be regenerating that Walton area so much as well. And I think that's, that's something that we should all try and remember as well. And obviously, Chris, Everton's footprint, as Adam says, there will always remain in Walton. How strange for you will it be to, to watch Everton play football in, in, in a different stadium, hopefully in, in the future? It will certainly be very different, but very, very welcome. It's been going on for a long, long time. I think it seems very different this time, as Adam just uh, mentioned, and, and Dave, the fact that the club are being so careful now, so diligent about every step that they've taken, because there's been so many false dawns and it was heartbreaking for Evertonians um, when uh, when King's Dock um, fell through I mean that everyone thought they were going to get this iconic stadium on the the banks of the Mersey then and it didn't happen so for it to happen relatively soon again because we thought that was a chance in a lifetime that had been squandered I mean it's, it's just excitement from from all Evertonians and like I said it's, it's been going on for so, so long I mean this was first seriously mooted in the mid nineties, I mean, I, I was a teenager now. I'm, I'm 39 now. I could have had an entire playing career and hung up my boots now. And then Chris, we've seen you play. Trust yeah. me. <laughs> <you can't. laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow! Yeah. That, that? that goal on Wednesday night. Well, uh, the lads can talk about that one. Oh, yeah. You weren't there to see his goal. Well, goal. Oh, right, the night. Okay. Lovely little see. right foot yeah. outside of the foot volley. Um, but yeah, so we're talking. From that player's point of view, for a standpoint, if that's been going on from a teenager, from before I'd even been able to start, and now obviously I would have finished up. So it's been going on such a long time now. So to see that the fruition of the, these projects, I mean, so many times it's been aborted, not just with, with King's Dock, but obviously Kirby, which was hugely controversial for obvious reasons, and even those sh- short-lived Walton Hall Park. I mean, it seems different this time, and you know, hopefully it, it will be. And how important is it, Dave? Obviously, it seems every season... Over the last few years, the the gap between the so-called big six and, and the rest of the Premier League has got bigger. How important is it these days to, to have a stadium like whatever and want to build? It's vital because, you know, clearly the vast proportion of football clubs' money these days comes from television revenue. Uh, and that all is dependent upon which competitions you're in. Obviously, Champions League generates huge, uh, you know, sort of portions of money uh, and where you, fi- where you actually finish in the Premier League. But, you know, it's not insignificant uh, the, the amount of revenue that is generated uh, by stadium hospitality packages. I mean, the actual, you know, so ticket prices these days are a very, very small proportion. But the reason Manchester United are one of the richest clubs in the, uh, in the world is because they developed Old Trafford to a 76,000 capacity. Yeah. And a vast proportion of that is expensive hospitality packages. It's why Tottenham Hotspur are doing what they're doing with White Hart Lane. And if you don't want to be left behind, you know, you have to, if you can't beat them, you've got to join them. So Everton, for a long, long time, have trailed miserably behind even the likes of Southampton, uh, you know, in terms of that part of uh, revenue generation. I think Everton have got 12 hospitality boxes at the moment, haven't they? And they've done all they can with Goodison Park, you know, to try and improve that side of things. And, you know, there's there's a counter-argument that do Everton supporters really have, you know, so is Everton supporters, you know, footprint really that kind of... um, Supporter, you know, is, is the potential there, uh, you know, so to build that revenue. And 
if you get a new stadium in place, it is because it's just that that novelty value. People want to see what it's all about. People don't just come from Merseyside; they come from the wider area around. Uh, it generates revenue. So yeah, if you want to try and compete, you know, with the teams in the top six, you, you've got to act the way that they're acting. And you know, the vast majority. I mean, Manchester City have got a new stadium. Manchester United have redeveloped Old Trafford to an incredible degree. Arsenal have got a new stadium. Tottenham are getting a new stadium. Liverpool have got a great new stand. In case you didn't know. <laughs> so, you know really? uh, yeah, exactly. You might have missed that. First, first, yeah. first of all, of it. So, so you know, you've got to compete with the clubs like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Everton should be there. I mean, Goodison Park, first purpose-built football stadium around them mm. for a long chunk of its history. The preeminent club ground um, in the entire country when the World Cup came to England in '66. It was obviously Wembley one semi-final, Goodison the other. It was the top league um, ground in the in the entire country. But so for Everton to fall that far behind, we're talking not just in, in revenue streams, but in general um, state of the ground, as much as it's loved as one of the sort of last bastions of those classic English grounds. But, you know, we've all been behind those pillars, those obstructed views at, at, at Goodison. I mean, Everton should, Evertonian should demand more and should expect um, a, a top quality um, stadium, which will be up there with the very best. A top quality stadium with character, uh, you can't yeah. have history because yeah. obviously history is developed over centuries, which is why Goodison is so special. Uh, but a football stadium with character and everything we've heard suggests that you know the club are embracing that and taking that you know sort of concept on board. It's a historical site, you know, which you know sort of ticks that box already. Uh, but everything does sound different about this project and does sound right. You know what I miss about Goodison? Remember the scoreboard? And it used to come up saying, like, come on, you Which is, blues. Well, it, it, it does that now, that does that now, now on the big screens, does yeah. it? Yeah, they, they, come, they bring it up at, like, like at that, just that random point. That scoreboard, though, just randomly saying, disappeared one season. It's at Peterson Park. Yeah, Tranmere Rovers have that scoreboard. Really? Genuinely. Uh, it was Whenever there was a goal, it used to have that little, little, uh, man, that little yeah. digital man yeah, <laughs> kicking, that, kicking yeah. the ball yeah. towards the, it, didn't it? Wasn't the one for a yellow card as well sometimes? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, yeah. Well, and obviously, you know, that scoreboard is at Prenton Park now. That, How you know, did that just, move materialise? Everton agreed to, I don't know if they gave it to them or they bought it from them, I don't know. But what's also interesting as well is, remember the old Littlewoods clocks that used to be in each corner of the ground? Yeah. Uh, you know, an iconic part of Goodison. And we wondered, we put out an appeal, what, what's happened to these clocks? and one of them is in somebody's backyard in Walton and we did a story on it a couple of years ago and it was a, a lovely girl who got in touch and said that well actually my father rescued it from a skip at the back of uh, Goodison said you know do you mind if I take this and the workman went no by all means it's going in the bin so you know took it and it still resides in somebody's backyard in how Walton. are they going to bin that I, I know did, it's, did it's, you not <laughs> think of tabling enough before Dave? I never even thought it was being taken away that summer but now it's uh, <laughs> Quite what my mum and dad would have made me coming yeah. in with one of them. One day. <laughs> I think those kind of details will, will be recognised. Dan Mice has said, hasn't he, when he's spoken to the public, he, he's not sort of been uh, specific in how he's going to do it, but there are going to be elements of the, the stadium. Um, you'd imagine somewhere they're going to have the Archibald Leach crisscross yeah. design somewhere yeah. incorporated, but they're going to be. He, um, Parts of Goodison, which are much larger, are going to be taken to the new stadium. And I think in that respect, it will be far better than King's Dock ever would have been. I mean, Evertonians sort of go to concerts at the arena now and perhaps have a, a wistful look about what might have been for a long time. But now with Bramley Moore hopefully going to happen, it's going to be even better and uh, much more characterful and uh, like... Um, Dave said um, with a nod to the past but also being unique in, within that, that dock setting and uh, Mice is hopefully going to come up with something uh, pretty special mm -hmm. and Adam obviously you watch most games uh, at Goodison now from the press box in mm -hmm. the main stand for you and I'm sure there's three different answers around this table where is your favourite spec in Goodison to watch the matches from? Um, 
I think on a personal level, I used to, I used, I had a season ticket in the upper Bullens for about ten or eleven years, so I'd probably say there it was quite close to the air, to the halfway line. So it was essentially, you know, what the TV cameras used to see. I used mm-hmm. to sit like behind that gantry up there. So yeah, I think that was my favourite place. And then I then did move to the uh, the upper Gladys, and whilst I loved like the atmosphere of the upper Gladys, I chose a really dreadful seat in which I was right behind one of them poles. <laughs> so I I missed like. <laughs> Like the whole right flank <laughs> was just was just decimated for me because I just couldn't see it. Preno, the Gladys Street man. Yeah, I think you're going to probably, we're all going to hark back to, you know, your formative memories of going to Goodison Park, you know, because they're always the most resonant. And uh, my first season was in the enclosure because I was only like 10 and, you know, so I had to sit on a crash barrier so I could actually see things. Uh, but from, <laughs> from there, I went to the, the Gladys Street and it was just, it was all standing there, obviously. And it was uh, just when it was split into the two areas, just the ledge, just on top of that ledge where that character called Fozzie Bear used to le- lead all the singing. And uh, I was just, just, to the, just to the left of that. But again, I was only like 11, 12 then. So you used to have to stand outside a crash barrier on the edge and you basically hang on to it. Because, you know, if you were actually the other side of the crash barrier, you would get crushed. Or there was like, there were surges when they were doing the Everton boot walk and you'd always end up getting, you know, so. And, what uh, was the yeah, Everton boot walk? Uh, you walk with a whittle and you walk with a squawk doing the Everton boot walk. It was, it was a chance. And it was, it was in the days when, uh, oh, 1970s chants were absolutely bizarre. Uh, the Andy King one for reasons of decor and we won't go into. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it was, it was just, the atmosphere was something different entirely then because the fans would actually get into the ground a good hour and a half before the big games you know two hours to make sure you got in and what you do for two hours you know you're bored so you sing and you chant and you sway up and down and there was this character like I say Fozzie Bear that used to lead an awful lot of the chanting in the middle he used to stand on one of the pillars and uh, you know lead the chanting and they were they were just you know great days maybe looking at it with rose tinted glasses here because it could be very very uncomfortable and very very claustrophobic at times and you know I remember num- numerous times you know you'd lose shoes and you'd lose you know so God knows how much, much money during games because it was like you know pretty rough and ready you know you see I, I can understand a few quid falling out your pocket but going home without your shoes oh, yeah. after celebrating the goal seems yeah well you know how do you find a shoe again you know when it's come off you know when you know you started you know sort of 10 yards away from yeah, where it actually yeah. ended and uh, me, made, me made well glasses glasses frequently went missing during <laughs> uh, I actually remember once years ago when um, uh, an Anfield derby on the um, the Anfield road ends and it was, again, absolutely rammed and just thinking, I'm not trying to get out of here until, you know, the, the crowd's thinned a bit. So you wait until, you know, so a portion of the crowd had left and you start leaving the terrace. I remember looking down and I must have left with about three or four quid because it was just like money all over the floor. And, you know, you'd imagine the stewards that, you know, so clean up after the game, you know, so made a few bob back then as well. But yeah, different days. So, you know, to answer the question, I think I've watched... <laughs> <laughs> well, I started, started with the street end. I think I, I've watched a game... A Goodison from every single section of the ground yeah. uh, now. And uh, yeah, the, you can't ever beat the streets and in the standing days. You know, that that, that would get the nod for me. Bees? Um, it's certainly not from the press box. I infamously remember oh, watching God. the Fiorentina penalty shootout when I had to decide, was I going to look at the, the penalty taker or the goal? Because I couldn't see both <laughs> at the same time. Cause we're, cause Is that with the pillar. pole in the way? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But for, for sheer view, I don't think it's obviously it's not the best for atmosphere, but my favourite view of the actual game where the way you can see it all pan out is top balcony. Wow, top I was balcony. I was gonna no, say I, I can't, I can't. the top balcony. <laughs> the, the top balcony is so steep. 
Like I, I, I'm, I'm fine with heights, but I don't like the top balcony. I like saw the Bayern Munich game from there. there, and it was, it was weird. It was oh. the only time I've ever been up there, and I wouldn't like to. <laughs> never to, to be fair, that was yeah. the first. I, my first ever game, I was up in the top balcony. Joe Parkinson's testimonial. It's my first ever I, game. I played in the uh, the pre-match game to that one. Did you? <laughs> I got, I got substituted by Archie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Subbed off by Archie. Uh, Archie and I was yeah. I, I thought I'd done all right, <laughs> and um, and I remember getting hauled off by Archie Knox and Don Hutchison, who'd been taken off before me, was killing himself laughing in the dughouse and saying, "I thought I was crap. You were worse." Yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, okay. <laughs> So obviously the international break gives us a little bit of time for reflection. Adam was sat here around about a third of the way through the season. What are your thoughts on what Marco's achieved so far? Where we're at? Are we above? Are we below? Or are we nailed on for what you would have expected at this stage? We have went to Arsenal, Man United and Chelsea. So a decent start, would you say? Yeah, I think the problem that we were having at the start of the season is that we we were trying to pinpoint our expectations and we had a new manager a new director of football like essentially have completely stripped out new squad of players and we just we just didn't really know what we were going to see and to be honest I'm really impressed by how quickly these these players seem to have gelled together into Silver's system you know it, it's you know the first couple of weeks it was a bit of a hard slog I'd say especially in terms of like creating chances you know we we've had we've had to dig out a few results, especially at the at the start of the season there. But I think now, like, these players are looking like they're in a rhythm. I think we've got about 14, 15 players, I'd say, now in really good form. You know, Marco Silva's really got a selection headache every week that he goes into the game. And to be honest, all I wanted to see from this season was just a distinct progression from, from last season. You know, people saying, you know, we should be finishing in Europe, we should be winning trophies. For this season, I don't, I think that, almost takes a bit of a backseat. I just want us I just want us to end the season and go, right, well we are we have massively improved from what we were last season. And then next season, new new deluge of players in the summer again, kick on again. Preno, agree with Adam? I do actually, yeah. It's a, a new manager. It, it's always a difficult time. You've got to be patient. You've got to allow them to embed, you know, their principles and their philosophies. Um, I don't know if anybody's read Kevin Ratcliffe's column today. Uh, and let's just say politely, Kevin can be a bit curmudgeonly at times. <laughs> but, you know, you could argue that, you know, he's been the very best, you know, the most successful captain the club's ever had. And he's played in the best teams the club has ever had. So he wants the best. But he actually said to me uh, yesterday when he was doing the column, he said... I'm beginning to feel a real sense of optimism about this team, about this uh, about this squad of players. He says the club's got its identity back. And uh, that's the most important thing because we certainly had lost that last season. Uh, we're seeing football that we want to see, quality of football. You know, that goal against Brighton, the, you know, the, the performance at Leicester, uh, the attitude um, at Chelsea, at Man United and at Arsenal are all things that, you know, Sir Everson should profess to be doing all the time. And they're doing that already. And if you're bearing in mind, with, this is our third international break, you know, so it's been a fractured season. He's had a difficult time trying to embed those principles and those philosophies, but Marco Silva's doing um, I think the the dip is still to come because new managers always have a little bit of a bounce where everyone gets behind them, everyone's excited by what they see. You know, so every single manager that we've had, you know, so people have thought, great, this is how it should be. Ronald Koeman, wonderful, the players are fitter than they ever have been. This is what we want to see. And then there's a dip, and you know, the, the crooks will come when Marco Silva has his dip. Uh, but everything we've seen so far is positive and enjoyable and, you know, going in the right direction. And so, you know, let's just support it and enjoy it while we can. If we can, you know, so somehow reinforce that 
with a maybe a decent FA Cup run, maybe a challenge for Europe, so much the better. But for the time being, let's just enjoy what you know principles and philosophies we're seeing embedded at the moment. Do you think that's that's been the key? B is that you know for the first time in what feels like forever, really, you can really identify with the manager, with the director of football, and with 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 the players. Um, I certainly think um, Roberto Martinez got Everton. Whether you. Um, I think his, his problem was he, he used to win more friends and football matches a lot of the time, but I think he understood what Everton were, was all about. So I don't think in that respect, I think there's certainly with Cooman and Allardyce was that disconnect to a certain extent. So um, maybe not in a long, long time, but I, th- I think that like the other t- um, two have just um, said for Everton, it, it, it's all about having that style again this season because I think realistically they're not going to finish that much higher up the table than they did last season. The, 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 the top six are so entrenched now. I mean, if you to break into that at all, just to get a European spot, never mind a Champions League, in which you'd need three out of the six all to have dreadful seasons just to get to the Champions League. That, that'd be incredible, just getting a European place from, from the league going anywhere beyond seven. So it is all about improving that style of play and again, having that sort of, feel about it because it's the total opposite it was last season where you know Allardyce finished saying well I took you to eighth but then anyone who'd watch the season watch the football that was being played see how attritional it was it's interesting what you say there about Martinez getting Everson um, uh, I'm not going to dance all over his grave now but I, I think footballers sorry football managers are politicians you know and they tell you what, what you want to hear and what you want to see and Roberto far more than anybody else the, the last Everson managers that have really you know, so understood Evertonians. Our Evertonians, Joe Royal, Howard Kendall, Colin Harvey, they got the club spectacularly. What Marco Silva gets at the moment is that Everton have got to play in a different style of football than we've been seeing in the recent past. They've got to play attractive, you know, so enterprising. He's been told that and he's, you know, he's actually, you know, repeated that so many times himself. He appreciates, you know, the... Uh, the brief that he's been given uh, and he's doing that. Whether he will ever, you know, sort of get Everton, become an Evertonian, who knows, time will tell. And I don't think it's that important to be perfectly honest, just as long as he produces the kind of football that we want to see as fans. Yeah. Not including David Moyes in your list of managers? No, I thought, about, I thought about that while you were saying it. And, you know, did he get it? I don't know. You know, he came out with the People's Club, which was a sincere comment, you know, so on his opening day. He was there a long, long time. But I think David Moyes always did it for David Moyes. I think he always wanted to be, he was a hugely driven, I, I like David Moyes an awful lot. And I think he was driven as a manager, absolutely driven. But he was driven to be a success for himself. You know, he wanted to be Man United manager, you know, and he wanted that from a long time ago, you know, and he wanted to be manager of the very, very best. And by being driven and obsessed to make Everton a success, he could then uh, go, you know, become a successful manager. So he never really did it. Uh, for Everton Football Club. Howard did. Howard adored Everton Football Club, as does Joe Royal, as did Joe Royal. They did it for the football club as much as they did it for themselves. But, you know, so modern breeder managers, I think they do it because, you know, they want to be successful managers as much as anything. Yeah. And talking about David Moyes there, Adam, is that something that, you know, certainly for, for me and you growing up, you know, we were talking about a little bit before about <clears> Everton, <throat> you know, we'd only ever really seen Walter Smith be sacked as manager and then all of a yeah. sudden in the last few years there's been a, a, lot, a lot of turnover so for younger fans growing up now you know it just seems like Everton are almost like the rest of the Premier League hiding and fine is, is that something you really want to see from Silver and, and see a project be developed over the long term? Yeah it's been a bit strange over the past few years like especially for like as you say people of our age like we like particularly remember I was growing up and like I, first couple of seasons I watched Walter Smith and then he was gone and then for 
significant amount of time then it was just David Moyes and I thought David Moyes was going to manage Everton forever well yeah you always see those like little you know when they come up with little tables on match of the day on longest serving managers it'd be like Fergie then Wenger then Moyes like all the time and it just it, it did just feel a little bit weird when that went and now we're we, we got stuck in a cycle a little bit I think of being like the rest of the Premier League and I, I would love to think that now we're out of that a little bit and I think modern football's a little bit different now. It's the it, it's very knee-jerk, I think, at its core. You know, there's, there are going to be these chops and changes. There's so much money involved, especially in the Premier League, now that you just can't afford these, you know, massive long spells of bad form. So, yeah, I do. I, I think the signs are promising from Silver that he's, he's building this sort of philosophy from the bottom up. You know, it's it's something that the fans have easily connected with because it's, it is so different than what we've seen so far you know it's hard work and it's energetic it's high press and you know it's quick as well which is something that we've been missing for a long long time so I think that I think the signs are absolutely there and you know with him coming in with brands the w- good work that they did over the transfer window I hope that's a partnership that we can see at Everton for years to come to be honest well, I think David Moyes is the, the anomaly obviously um, <laughs> over 11 years in the one job um, and what Everton have had the last couple of years just like one year less than a year um, Allardyce I think the natural sort of lifespan now for a manager is something like three to five years you're going to be realistic that's what you want to be aiming for not chopping and changing every single year and I think just as Everton need that stability I think Marco Silva needs that as well because yeah. he's been very promising in parts at Hull started well at Watford then that fell away very quickly so I think it's it, it mutually beneficial Everton need that stability and then Marco Silva needs to show he can do a, a good job over a fairly prolonged period of time it is mm. as, as B says pretty much a Looking in from the outside, it is quite a, an odd match at first when you think, I don't think Silver had lasted more than a year at any of his last several clubs and Everton three managers in three years. But sometimes in football, these things can just come together at the right time, can't they? I'd love to talk in depth with Farhad Mashiri about the, uh, the recruitment process because, you know, we've spoken to lots of people at the football club in lots of various you know, sort of positions of authority. And Mashiri is the one who's a little bit reclusive. We've had a couple of, you know, conversations, but not with any great depth with him. But I know he, you know, wanted Marco Silva, uh, you know, quite significantly, you know, from the get-go. And it wasn't, you know, let's try and phrase this correctly. I wouldn't say anybody was against the idea, but it wasn't like, you know, universally enthusiastic approval, you know, sort of across the entire board. You know, it was like, well, why him? For exactly the same reasons that you've said about, you know, short-lived, you know, sort of reigns at Hull City and at Watford. And there were other contenders, other people that, you know, sort of were suggested for the job. Uh, but he was quite resolute in, in actually wanting Marco Silva. So I'd like to know, you know, so quite why, you know, so what, what you saw in there that convinced him that he was the man. I know he had, a, you know, a great record you know, in Europe at smaller clubs, you know, in smaller leagues and, you know, so bright starts in the Premier League, but nothing that would make you think, yes, you know, so absolutely go out and get him. But, you know, it's very, very early days. And yeah, I agree that that three-year time span seems to be the the actual model nowadays where you've got to try and achieve some, you know, some kind of progress. Otherwise, you're on, you're on shaky ground then. And, you know, well, Marco Silva's already making progress, you know, so six months in and long may it continue. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast. And Adam, at this point of the season as well, and and this question doesn't necessarily mean who's been Everton's best player this season, but who's impressed you the most since the the start of the new campaign? Uh, Michael Keane. I think the difference that we've seen from him this season has been, like, extraordinary. I think we all all know the problems that he had last season. And I think 
in a lot of ways, they weren't really his fault. You know, he was coming from such a solid Burnley team that was run really well by Sean Dyche defensively at the time that he walked into an Everton team, which at that time, I don't think Ronald Koeman particularly knew how to even set it up. Like he'd bought, he'd bought a lot of players that summer and then he just went, well, how do I put these into a starting <laughs> no, 11 then? No oh, I know. he was as a team. No. Yeah, I know. I'll put Dominic Calvert-Lewin at right wing back. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I'll solve this solve. crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think, you know, his, his problems were well documented last season and, you know, there were, a, there were a couple of questions about him in the summer. And, uh, to be fair, I don't think he particularly had a strong preseason in general, but uh, ever since that first game, against Wolves, you know, Jack Elka got sent off and Mason Holgate came on and he Michael Keane had to be the leader in that in that back four for the rest of that Wolves game. And I think he played that role perfectly. I think he's been our best defender this season and it's not just in terms of, you know, how good in the air he is despite having a fractured skull at one point of the season. You know, he's he is mm. so good at those aerial duels and he's so good physically against three strikers. But it's as he as you mentioned before, Preno, like off off air, you were talking about how well he brought the ball out for England yeah. uh, on Thursday night, and I think that's something that's really impressed me so far for Everton. You know, I think he uses he's he's starting to use the ball so well. You know, he's spraying forty, fifty yard passes. You know, down the mm. flank or cross field. Unless it's Seamus Coleman, he's trying to find. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, it 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 has just impressed me so much. What what a bit of confidence can do yeah, for, a, for a player like Michael Keane. And you know, I think at some point last season, we maybe forgot how young he was. And, yeah. you know, he's still, he's still got so much that he can pr- improve on. And I know there's been like New Silence, like Richarlison and Luca Dean have done really well since they've come in. But in terms of the difference that he's shown from last season, I think Michael Keane's impressed me more than anyone else. Well, I've spoken to Michael a couple of times last couple of weeks um, and he said that Stamford Bridge at the, at the weekend um, I asked him being alongside Yuri Mina was he meaning he was having to step up and be that more vocal and he said well I was trying to do that anyway because it's something I've always been trying to do is to to speak to the, the other defenders and sort of lead um, anyway and, he, and he'd said in the previous time that I'd spoken to him that when it came to the first day of pre-season he said it's almost like I took the attitude I'll start again here right off that first season we've spoken on these podcasts in previous weeks about all those well-documented problems with his injury have now come out and the fact that he was playing with that awful injury and then the, the anguish over that so yeah it was almost like he, he wiped the, the slate clean the someone decided to, to start again and then Everton reaping the benefits and he's come full circle back in the England team Any other nominations for people who've impressed you Dave? Yeah I mean I would endorse uh, the, the Michael Keane nomination wholeheartedly but for, for me it's a bit of a dual pronged one really uh, Andre Gomez uh, because He's just such a, a, a classy-looking Everton footballer. Um, you know, his touch is impeccable, uh, usually. And uh, he's always looking to play the ball positively. Uh, now, as an individual, he's been a very, very impressive addition to the squad. But it's the balance that he brings to the Everton midfield. Garner Gay looks a better player straight away for having him alongside him. The Schneiderlin-Gay combination we've spoken about many times in this room. And, you know despite what qualities each might have independently, together they don't really work as a partnership. Gomez, Gay and Sigurdsson, if you want to place them in that triangle, do. Um, he just knits things together really simply, really effectively, makes Gay look like a better player, um, just you know, brings things all together, uh, just, just more assured, 
Uh, been very, very impressed with him. And he's only been here for his, his third start, was it the weekend or his fourth start? He's only mm. been here, you know, a very, very short period of time. So, you know, once he gets two or three months under his belt and he gets up to the pace of the Premier League, I can't wait to see what he's producing. A scary thought. Uh, on Facebook, we've started a new Royal Blue podcast group. Uh, and this week we invited some of your questions in. So we'll quickly go through a couple of them now for you. We've got Stan Frank, who asked, can all three of our centre-backs, I'm assuming he means Zuma, Mina and Keane, can they all play together in the same Everton team? They can, but uh, if I can throw a bit of a left-field one in, again, Kevin Ratcliffe's column today uh, was obviously emboldened by what he saw at Stamford Bridge at the weekend. And uh, he said, if Everton are to play three at the back, and he thinks he shouldn't really do it away from home, certainly not Goodison, Phil Jagielka should be the man in the middle of it. He says he likes his experience, he likes the way he dictates and he organises things, and he would have him either side of Keane and Mina. Um, that's very harsh on Kurt Zuma, who's like being very, very, very good this, this season. Uh, the three can play together. I personally don't like it. I, I like a flat back four. I like the you know, the extra attacking options that might give you. I mean, you can argue that Dean yeah, and Coleman are more better, you know, better suited to playing wing back roles. But you know, I, I prefer a flat back four. But yeah, you know, to answer the question, Stan Frank, uh, yes, I think um, they can play together. Would, would you be happy seeing a seeing a back five, Adam? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I, th- I think I've got to agree with Preno's sentiments. Yet they can they can play in that system, and I think uh, Marco Silva showed that against Chelsea. You know, I was, I was a bit uh, wary when Jagielka came on initially, but you know, I, I think we we look pretty solid in that mm-hmm. five at the back system. The problem that I always have in thinking of you know. Could could these like all these three centre backs are playing really well, and I know it's harsh to drop one of them, but I think it's the lesser of two evils when you think if you played five at the back, you've got to lose one of your players further up the pitch. So who else? Gomez, Gay, Sigurdsson, Richarlison, Bernard, and then either Walcott or Lucken. Yeah. Which one of them do you drop? And for me, I just think we'd lose too much going forward trying to accommodate uh, that sort of defensive system. So. No, I I wouldn't personally like to see it unless it was like a, a, a some sort of desperate scenario. But yeah, I, I'd I'd rather stick with the system that's been working so far this season. Bees, yeah, don't like the free at the back. Never had. I don't I don't think it's ever really worked for Everton. Just probably a, just be- a City game, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, the, pro- when we beat them four 0 Probably. Um, yeah, that was a strange one, wasn't it? The formation that day, but yeah, yeah. obviously worked worked well. But I think it's because they 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 ne- they've never sort of kept with it. It's almost like an alternative in that they sort of try it intermittently and because they're not used to playing that way they don't particularly uh, seem to have any success with it so no, I think um, it's, a, it's a long season we've got we've got so many games coming up in um, December um, there's going to be opportunities for everyone you've just got to make those harsh calls and go with the whichever two you think it is in that given weekend and sticking with you Bees Callum Lapsley wants to know can we realistically challenge for top four this season if we keep up our good home form and start getting results against the big six away? It's top four too soon to be thinking about? Yeah, yeah it's too soon. Um, I think um, it's it's not so much what Everton do, it's what the others don't do. And I've pointed out there that you have got an established big six in this division who are so far ahead of the rest. So for Everton to even get into the Prem- sorry, the Champions League, um, Three out of those six would have to have awful seasons. So we saw Martinez's first season, it was a record points haul for Everton in the Premier League. They still didn't make it. And then obviously the f- famous time that they did, uh, 04, 05, was with what would now be seen quite a low points level, as, as great as that was after finishing 17th the previous season. So I think that, I don't think, that's nothing about what Everton's capabilities are. It's just the rest are so far ahead. So no, top four, definitely not. So top, top six, seven? 
let's yeah I, I think that's probably the be- the best we can hope for you know it 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 just does depends i think it goes back to what i was saying before this is still a transitional season and you know all i want to see at the end of the campaign is just a significant progression in where we are as a club so you know if we if we can keep this good run of form going and i'd like i'd like to think that that chelsea perform well the chelsea result especially was a bit of a, a bit of a turning point for us because you know we played i think we played better against arsenal i think we played better in general against manchester united but we got beat in both of those matches grinding out that one result against Chelsea. I want to see that as now a progression going into, you know, games at Anfield, uh, the game at the Etihad that are coming up, well, fast approaching, aren't they? You know, I'd, li- I'd like to see us go into there and, you know, we've now made ourselves really tough to beat. You know, we, we've got the quality up front to go and get the points out of those kinds of games. So I'd like to see us try and do that. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of strong teams in this league and, you know, they're gonna they're gonna hit form at some point. You know, as Preno was saying before, there's probably going to be a point where Everton will have a bit of a a bit of a dodgy run of form. So, you know, if we can keep this good run of form going, then I think top six might be a shelf. But I think top four is who, who are you who are your top one out of the the, the big six? United well, at, the, at the minute, you've got to think United, haven't you? Mm. They're, they're not looking stable at all under Jose Mourinho. I think there's some significant gaps in that squad. I mean, especially if the if they do end up getting out of their Champions League group, their eyes are going to be on that rather than the Premier League. And I think if if that does happen, I'd like to see us try and capitalise on that, yeah. And momentum's always key, Dave, but, you know, looking at this now, I think in the second half of the season, the only one out of those big six that we have to go away to is, is Spurs. So, you know, if Everton could put together a nice little pre-Christmas run, you know, you, you've got a lot of big boys coming to Goodison with a... With, what will hopefully be a, a top atmosphere? Yeah, we've had that little bit of a, a weird run at the moment whereby we've had winnable home games and then very, very tough away games. Yeah. And, you know, that stops you from getting any kind of, you know, real momentum developing uh, unless you can do, you know, do something unexpected, which you could argue Everton did at Chelsea and, you know, becoming the first team to stop them from scoring, you know, and get, getting a point there. And don't be sniffy about grinding out results. I mean, Manchester City went to Anfield and ground out a result, you know, so sometimes... Should have won. Yeah, well, yeah, you should have done, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes needs must, you know, so you have to, uh, you know, so cut your cloth accordingly. Uh, but yeah, December is is an opportunity for Everton. You know, there's a number of fixtures in there that you can't ever take for granted. Obviously, Anfield jumps out at you, you know, like like a sore thumb, uh, a place where you know we've had like such you know awful record for so long. But you know, if a bit of momentum can be developed before then, you know, you, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, but top six, I think, is is quite achievable. I mean, Chris Hutton actually declared after the other Brighton game, and that's maybe clever management trying to deflect from how poor his side were that day by accentuating how good Everton were. But he says he can't see, you know, so they are nailed on for top six because they played that well today. Maybe if Everton could play that well every week, you know, so they would be nailed on for top six. Mm. But that, maybe that won't happen. Uh, but that's got to be, you know, a target to aim for. But, you know, actually, you know, so like you say, knocking somebody out of there is difficult. The, you know, the top three haven't lost a game yet this season. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, so Tottenham have got absolute, you know, quality in their ranks and have had for some year, time to time. Now, Arsenal are a growing force under Emery. So again, that does leave Jose's boys and, you know, whether they, if they don't add to it the squad in January as is rumoured, well, you know, may, maybe they'll continue to slip a little bit. Let's hope so. Mm-hmm. And six weeks from the transfer window, open them back up. Adam Bert over on Twitter asked, can you see any incomings or outgoings in January given our recent form? Do you think that there could be a case for strengthening in, in the central forward area or do you think anyone could look to maybe leave the club either short term or permanently? Uh, maybe in terms of outgoings, like uh, uh, maybe 
see some sort of loans maybe maybe on the way out but in terms of incomings like the january window always throws up these kinds of issues you know essentially clubs just don't want to lose their their best players uh, in the middle of a season so you're always going to be paying over the odds prices i think in january and after what we've seen from marcel brands especially in the summer you know with those negotiations with barcelona over like to dean and mina you know he he very much likes to play hardball and get the price that he thinks uh, Everton should be paying. So I don't know in terms of January whether whether we really get value for money if we went if we went for anyone. So I'm I'm minding to say we we might be quite quiet. The, the club's already said, haven't they, that they're not expecting to do a great deal of business in January. And if we are going to see anything, it's likely to be outgoings. I mean, there's a number of players that just haven't featured in first-team squads recently. Umar Nias, I'm thinking of. Uh, Holgate's not been in squads recently. Schneidlin. Uh, Schneidlin. So, you know, whether they will be moving on permanently, who knows, but they'll want to be playing football, certainly. Uh, so, you know, loan deals, you know, so hours of the club could, could be, you know, the most... The most activity we'll see in January. Any any love for the centre forward in January, Bees? I certainly think Everton long term need a new centre forward, but I don't think January will probably be the right time to do it. Given as Adams just said, you only tend to get players in January if you either pay over the odds or you get a player who is unwanted for whatever reason at his particular club. Sometimes it can work in in your in your favour. And it was I see Nikita Yelovich came in and uh, certainly short term did. Uh, so did Imani Ass. Yeah, <laughs> so did James B. C. Can we get yeah, can we actually, yeah, Dennis Strachulers? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, don't knock Dennis. Yeah. He was tremendous. Well, yeah. Was he, was he though? He, he, he was really was, tremendous. He was, was, was he January? I thought he was a summer. He was summer. Him and Royce in the summer. No, his enthusiasm was just like so endearing. All right, quality wasn't great. Yeah, when he literally started crying when he scored against Chelsea. That was one of my favourite ever ever mm-hmm. moments. That and <laughs> the, the debut was it his debut against Manchester City, or was that just his first real? That was his first start, wasn't it? And he absolutely bullied company, and we won one nil, and Dan Gibson scored. Yeah. And I remember that day, like the stand ovation he got was like it just like the ground was yeah. just shaking, and you know everyone knew he wasn't the, the best footballer, but for for a, for a loan spell. I'll always love football. Fan, football fans, fans will forgive players an awful lot of things if they show they're giving absolutely everything. I know you, you always did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Overall, like we said, there's even somebody like Yelovich who started really well, ultimately wasn't a, a huge success. So, no, I, I, I think obviously Richarlison's doing well in in fits and starts. He worked very hard at Chelsea and Sunday. Didn't get a lot of change out of them, but obviously there'll be games like Brighton where he was um, excellent. But um, I think long term, it, it, his best position is out on the wing, and Everton need to get to get a, a new centre forward because again, Tosin's had his moments, but overall isn't quite showing the kind, the kind of quality and the movement that you'd expect. But I think there's a lot more, there's be, much better chance of having to wait and get that next summer than than necessarily in the January transfer window. And Dave Stephen Kembry asking about he's seen rumours that Everton are linked with players such as Chris Small and Marcus Rojo. Uh, Centre-back's a, a little bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because Phil Jagielka's going to be out of contract. Whether we make a move for Kurt Zuma will probably become more apparent as the season goes on. Do you think that's another area where, definitely in the summer, there's going to have to be some, some movement? And in the summer, yeah, but you know, so certainly not in January. I mean, I think an awful lot depends on you know what happens with, uh, with Phil Jagielka. 35, is he now? Um, 36. 36. Um, but still... 
you know, injuries apart, fit. We, we asked Marco Silva this question, uh, him and Leighton Baines, and, and he wouldn't be drawn. Um, you know, basically suggested that, you know, the the time to talk about that is, you know, sort of post-January. You got the impression you didn't want to be committed because you suspect that, you know, both players, if they're not featuring, will be looking to, if not, you know, sort of call it a day, certainly move on and play, you know, sort of football elsewhere, which would then leave, you know, sort of an opening. But, you know, Holgate, you know, so still hasn't featured, you know, so hardly at all this season. Has he still got, you know, so a long-term future at the club? Um, a, a lot of thinking to be done. Smalling, decent enough player. I wouldn't be, you know, sort of against the idea of, uh, of bringing him in. But, you know, I certainly can't see anything happening before the summer. A, a new three-year deal for Ashley Williams, not in your thinking, Dave? No. <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting he's an Everton player. Well, for now, anyway. Mm-hmm. From what you've seen so far, Adam, do you think it would be crucial to, to get Kurt Zuma on a, on a permanent eventually? Uh... Will Kurt Zuma want that? Yeah, it, it does depend, doesn't it? Because Zuma, when he first joined, was very much saying, oh, well, I'm very focused on getting into that Chelsea team. Uh, I think just before he moved to Stoke, didn't he sign a five or six year contract? With Chelsea, like, that's going to be, it's going to cost us a hell of a lot of money to try and get him out of that. And then you, you're looking then if if he does keep up this kind of good form until the end of the season, what other clubs are going to be coming in for him? You know, you'd expect some of your Champions League clubs to be coming in for him if he's playing that well. So I think it's definitely going to be some sort of battle if we do want him at the end of the season. So I don't know, it, it really just does depend on circumstances. Sometimes it's the old phrase, once Everton has touched you. Yeah. And I, I'll never, ever forget uh, Duncan Ferguson back in the days when he was a lone footballer. And uh, on the very rare occasions, he would uh, decide to speak speak or grunt or mutter to the press. <laughs> and uh, I was down at a hotel uh, before the Portsmouth League Cup tie. And um, I think he played at Southampton and got injured. And so he wasn't playing against uh, Portsmouth. And um, we were staying in the same hotel. And uh, just saying to him, I don't think he knew I was a journalist, which is probably why he answered me. Um, I said, do you think, uh, you know, so if, if it's a success, you know, so if, if your loan period goes here, well, you know, do you think you might stick around? You might stay? And he says, I wouldn't have thought so, son. Uh, you obviously the Rangers, man. You know, so you absolutely loved Rangers. And it was scoring that goal against Liverpool, seeing the way the Goodison crowd reacted to him, realising how loved he was by the Everton supporters, that something, a penny dropped and, you know, so something changed and he became the absolutely, you know, so committed Evertonian is to this day. So you never know, you know, so things can change during the course of a spell and a crowd reaction, you know, feeling wanted, you know, so feeling loved by a football crowd can change people's perceptions. That could happen with Kurt Zuma, we don't know. We'll could, see. In a few years, we could see Kurt Zuma with the uh, Everton crest on his, on his <laughs> arm. <laughs> well, it was like that, wasn't it? Again, the loan deal from Chelsea, Romelu Lukaku, and people have speculated, was this one of the reasons why some Evertonians never really took to him? Because when, first of all, he was on loan and you thought, the better he does, the more goals he scores, the less likely it is that he will join Everton on a permanent basis. But they managed to get that deal over the line and then he gave the club another three years of uh, prolific service. That was that was one of the best ever Everton transfers, that for me, because I just didn't think Everton a, had the money or even like the capacity to offer Lukaku what, what he would have wanted in a club. And I remember getting home one night and it was just on the Vidi printer on, on Sky Sports News. And I remember thinking... We've made it. Well, made I, it. I got told the story behind that signing only a couple of uh, weeks ago, which I was completely unaware of. And uh, Bill Kenrice was actually negotiating with uh, with West Brom for Salomon Rondon, which uh, Martinez, uh, you know, sort of wanted, you know, sort of come to the football club. And that was not going to happen. But they suggested that, well, Lukaku's loan deal is coming to an end, you know, and uh, would you be interested in that? So, you know, Bill says to Roberto, would you be interested in Romelu Lukaku, who nearly fell off his chair? <laughs> 
go and get him, go and get him. You know, so, you know, they obviously went negotiated. He came on loan initially. And yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. What a signing that was. So we could have ended up with Solomon Rondon. Could have done, yeah, yeah. Just for some reason, just don't think he would have had the same impact. It's as not really as exciting, is it? It's not. <laughs> and it was, it was a dead exciting deadline day, that one as well, because obviously we had McCarthy and Gareth Barry on the same evening. Yeah. And there was that kind of like car chase, wasn't there? Where he was meant to be going to West Brom. Ah, and then yeah. all of a sudden on Sky yeah. Sports News, they, they, like, they, they, they like lost him for like 15 or 20 minutes. Like yeah. they didn't really know whether he was going to West Brom or Everton. And then he ended up becoming a top blue. Well, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Keep following our Facebook page, the Royal Blue Podcast, and get all your questions in there for our upcoming shows. We'll be back early next week to discuss all the latest Everton news. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.